he and I have known each other, if you read the article, a long time uh, when his dad was my pastor back when I was 10 years old. So we met way back Chandra. Is that okay? Way back there. And have known each other through the years as pastors. And a delight to have you here, Jimmy. Please come and share with us. It is a privilege to be here today. Uh, I was the first pastor who had the privilege of standing in this pulpit and proclaiming the word of the Lord. I have been back on occasion to preach at a funeral service, but this is the first time since 1989 that I've had the opportunity to stand in this pulpit, which was mine for about two and a half years. The other uh, rest of the time it was in what you now call Clyde Chapel and uh, to proclaim the word of the Lord. And I'm grateful to Glenn Martin for giving me that opportunity and to the United Methodist Women. I'm here because the United Methodist Women are emphasizing the Methodist home in their meeting today, and I'm on the Speaker's Bureau. Last year, Bishop King picked up Rick Lanford and Derek McAleer for other duties, and the children's home chose to take a year before they found the right person to take their places. They have announced that the Reverend Mark Magoni from Wesley Church, which is the continuation of the church that Glenn and I share together, will be moving into that role. But for this year, they asked some of us uh, old preachers in the Macon area to be on the Speaker's Bureau, and I'll be making the, pr- the main presentation about the children's home at the, after this service in the Curry Annex, and I understand if you'd like to come, you're certainly welcome to come. But let me give you the elevator version or the cliff notes of uh, the Methodist home. Since 1872, the Methodist home has been an arm of South Georgia Methodism reaching out to children and youth in need. At first, these were orphans uh, because their parents uh, had been uh, had gone through the rigors of the Civil War and the Reconstruction and all over South Georgia. Boys and girls did not have a mother or daddy. Later, these tended to be children whose families became dysfunctional or who fell on hard times economically and couldn't raise their children and turn to the church for help. Today, a large number of our girls and boys come to us through the foster care system, and often they come to us after they have had 10 or 15 or more failed placements. The main campus is in Macon, where it's been since 1872. In recent years, group homes have been established for girls in Americus, Valdosta, and Waverly Hall, and for boys in St. Mary's and Columbus. On each campus, the mission and the goal of the Methodist home is to nourish and enrich each child's life, or as Allison Evans, our current president, puts it, to restore childhood. Because these boys and girls come to us often with the few possessions they have in a plastic bag, and they feel thrown away and indeed often have been. Many have suffered every type of abuse that you can do to a child, physical, sexual, emotional. On your behalf, the Methodist home plants a seed of caring in the lives of these boys and girls with the prayer that it may blossom and bloom so that that child can become the beautiful child of God that he or she was created to be. I have 
put at or have had someone put at all the tables a brochure about the Methodist home that I would invite you to pick up and take with you, and a special gift, a package of seeds the, with the slogan, Restoring Childhoods. And I sincerely hope you'll take a package of seeds home with you and plant it as a reminder of what you are doing through the Methodist home. There's a lot more that could be said, and I'll be saying a bit more of it at the next hour, but I came here to preach. And so let us plant a seed of the word of the Lord. Glenn has already read our scripture lesson, but let me just remind you of the two opening verses. Now, among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they said to him, Sir... We wish to see Jesus. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. For many years, Dr. Robert Shuler broadcast a television service from the Crystal Cathedral in Garden Grove, California, that he called the Hour of Power. I have always thought that that was a wonderful title for a worship service. Indeed, for anything. For we like hours of power. We like times when things are happening, when they're moving somewhere, when they're accomplishing something. Our scripture lesson is about an hour of power in the life of Jesus. At the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, Jesus had said to his mother, My hour has not come. But now at the Passover festival, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And as the scripture passage unfolds, we see that what that hour of power is in the life of Jesus and the hours of power that can be in our lives as well. There is an hour of power when people are searching. Now, among those who came to worship at the Passover festival were some Greeks. Rome captured the Mediterranean world, but Greek captured the culture and the philosophy of the Roman Empire. And their attitudes infected people of a bunch of lands. And the Greeks were the world's first great tourist. They liked to see things. They liked to go for themselves. Herodotus, 500 years before Christ, traveled the known world just to see it, just to see what was going on. Plus, the Greeks were seekers after wisdom and knowledge and truth. And many were attracted to the Jewish faith in the communities that were dispersed among the Roman Empire because they worshipped a God who was one and holy and righteous. And that seemed such a great improvement over the Greek pantheon with its capricious, malicious, unpredictable gods and goddesses. So it was natural to find Greeks at the Passover festival. No doubt these Greeks were alert to everything that was going on while they were there. After all, tourists try to take in everything they can. They no doubt heard of Jesus. Maybe some of them had heard him teach. Maybe they were even there in the temple when Jesus drove out the money changers and the animal sellers because that took place in the court of the Gentiles. They came to Philip, who had a Greek name, and they said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. 
Philip didn't know what to do. So he sought Andrew's advice. Since Andrew was the brother-in-law of Simon Peter and often one of the four inner circles around the, the master, and Andrew went with Philip and they told Jesus. Jesus saw that his ministry was beginning to unfold past beyond the house of Israel to the whole world that he had come to save. And he responded to that seeking of the Greeks with this pronouncement, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour of people searching for him is an hour of power for Jesus. And it's always an hour of power when people turn to Jesus, when they seek him, when they want to know more of his will and way. In 1986, this sanctuary was well underway. We didn't know exactly when we'd be moving into it, but it definitely was taking shape. When we gathered at the 11 o'clock service in our sanctuary we'd had since 1947, which is now Clyde Chapel, we were cozy, to say the least. Clyde Chapel, the way it was configured then, would seat 152 people if you liked each other a lot. And our average attendance at 11 o'clock was running about 130, sometimes 140. I don't know how we got them all in that Easter. Uh, We did somehow. I think they sat on each other, maybe. But it was a wonderful service. We had people together. We had spirit. We had enthusiasm. And I'd look across the courtyard at this, to me, huge building over here that the architect told us would seat 450 people. And I would wonder what's going to happen to our worship services when we move into this triple the size space, particularly since we had agreed to keep the two morning services, the early service and the 11. In fact, I even went to the building committee and proposed that we lock the balcony and not allow people to sit up there until we really needed the space. That's one of the votes I lost in the, in the building committee. But it's well that I lost it because, you see, I was discounting something. I was discounting the spirit of seeking that the Richmond Hill United Methodist people brought from the old sanctuary into this sanctuary. We were still seeking to see Jesus. We were still seeking to walk in his way and to know his will. And all my fears proved totally not worth worrying about when we came over here. And as they say in in certain cultures, we had church in this big space as well as in the old Clyde Chapel. The most important element in worship is what you and I bring to it. The most important element in our lives is what we bring to it. And when we bring a desire to know Jesus, to see him, there are hours of power in our lives. There's an hour of power when people are searching for Jesus. And there's an hour of power when we see Jesus in his sufferings. The Greeks wanted to see Jesus. John never tells us if they did. It's one of those things hanging. When you get to heaven, you want to say, John, tell us the rest of what happened. But you see, John knows that it's not 
what happens between the Greeks and Jesus that's really important. It's when we see Jesus in what happened after that, when he went to the cross, when we see Jesus in his passion for us, then we know hours of power. So John tells us that Jesus turned to Andrew and Philip and said, Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now my soul is troubled. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then heaven speaks, although most folks thought it was thundering. Some thought it might be an angel. And Jesus said, this has come for your sakes, not for mine. Because Jesus didn't need to be reminded of what he knew. His mission was the cross. It's the way of the cross that leads home. And then just in case we haven't got the point, John adds there, he said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. The cross is the place where we see all of the ministry of Jesus coming together and finding its fulfillment. All the light of sacred story gathers round its head sublime. You can read through the Gospel of John and find people coming to Jesus for all kinds of needs and wants and things that the Father desires for them. But it's at the cross that their needs are most fully met. John the Baptist had stood on the Jordan River and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But the place where we know without a doubt that our sins are forgiven, that our guilt is taken away, is when we look at the cross and see our Lord and Savior dying for our sins, for our salvation, for our redemption. Nicodemus came looking for what God was saying in Jesus. And Jesus told him he could not enter the kingdom of God unless he was born again or born anew or born from above. All are appropriate translations of the Greek. How does it happen for you and me that we again and again are renewed in our Christian faith and drawn closer to the Lord again? Is it not when we know how much we are loved by the Son and the Father? Is it not when we look at the cross and say, O oh, love divine, what hast thou done? The woman of Samaria thirsted for the water that will become a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. That water is the presence of Jesus in our lives, and it's poured out most fully on the cross. There we see that love divine, all loves excelling, that is the source of everything that really matters in life. The man who'd been ill at Bethsaida for 30 years and wanted healing, the crowd who had experienced the miracle of the loaves and the fish and sought Jesus for manna, the woman caught in adultery who needed a new chance, the man blind from birth who wanted to see, Mary and Martha wanting comfort in the death of their brother Lazarus, all of them came to Jesus, and Jesus tended to them with shepherding care. And then he showed us how far he would go 
to care for his sheep for you and me, saying, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. Have you ever tried to put together one of those wooden puzzle, puzzles that's a whole bunch of interlocking pieces? And if somebody's mean to you, they give it to you, not together, but, you know, all the pieces apart or even in a, in a hump. And you look at that and say, how will I ever get this thing together? Well, the key is to find the one piece that everything else fits in. And if you find that piece, the whole puzzle comes together. And someone has said the Christian life has a similar character. The one piece around which everything fits together is the old rugged cross. There is an hour of power when people are searching and seeking. There's an hour of power when we see Jesus in his sufferings. And there's an hour of power when we share in his way of loving. Jesus is the grain of wheat who falls into the ground and dies. And we are intended to be the harvest that results from the death of the grain. Only Jesus can be the first grain. He alone can die once for all. But the rest of us prove ourselves to be part of his harvest when we seek to love his way when we make our lives an expression of the love that's been so wonderfully shared with us. Jesus put it clearly here. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in the world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor a member in Warner Robins gave me one of those gym clip dispensers for my desk. It's got a magnet in the lid. And when you open it up, you get a whole chain of gym clips that have all attached together. Now, only the lid has the magnet. But every one of those gym clips that's attracted to the magnet passes it on to another gym clip. One of the great joys of the Christian life is discovering our place in being a part of the harvest of the grain that Jesus planted on Golgotha. One of the real powers that comes in our Christian life is when we discover that we can have a part, that we can share the love of Jesus. For a number of years, a group of United Methodist women at Vineville United Methodist Church in Macon, where I was on staff for seven years in retirement and where Judy and I still attend, for a number of years, those United women got together to make a quilt. They spent all year on it. Carefully, painstakingly, they met every week with their needles on the quilting frame and gave full attention to developing that quilt. By the time we get into about this time of the year, that quilt would be a work of art. Uh, as they say on Antiques Roadshow, at auction, it would have brought a considerable sum. But you know what would happen every July? The United Methodist women would have a meeting of the whole unit, and they would invite a representative of the Methodist home to come. And the quilting group would take that quilt and give it to the representative of the Methodist home free with no compensation. 
Why? Because they knew what was going to happen to that quilt. It would join six or seven others in the superintendent's office. And when a new boy or girl came to the home with those possessions in a plastic bag, that child would go into the superintendent's office and they would be told, choose a quilt. Any one of the quilts here, you choose. And that quilt will be your very own. Even if you leave the home, that quilt goes with you. It is your possession because there are people all over South Georgia who want you to know that you are covered with the love of Jesus, that Jesus loves you and he is with you whatever you must face. And that knowledge was compensation enough for those United Methodist women in Bonneville. Several of the boys from Carpenter's Ranch, our Methodist group home, it's actually several group homes in Columbus, volunteered at the Valley Rescue Mission, which is a homeless shelter in downtown Columbus. Some of them helped in the clothing and, and uh, food ministry like you're, uh, you have here. But Zach and four others from his cottage helped in the meal ministry and served a hot meal to homeless men and women and children. Zach seemed to have a special rapport with those who came. He reached out to them. Someone observing it said when they saw Zach relate to the homeless, particularly the children, but the men and women, they felt like they were observing a God moment. There was something holy about it. And what was going through Zach's mind? He said, when I looked at those folks and saw how blessed I was and how little they had, I knew I had to share with them the love of Jesus. Zach discovered the real joy of sharing in Christ's way of loving we like hours of power. We like times when things are happening and going somewhere and accomplishing something. May God give us grace to find our hours of power where Jesus did, in searching for him, in his sufferings for us on the cross, and in sharing in his way of loving. For when we find them that way, there are plenty of hours of power in our lives. May all God's people say, Amen.